The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, again, take your Bibles and let's find our way to the Upper Room Discourse in John chapter 13. We're working our way through John 13. We're going to go all the way through chapter 17, which is Jesus' description. It's John's description, rather, of Jesus' final farewell speech, his final conversation with his disciples. This is of extreme and utmost importance. Out of 21 chapters, John devotes five chapters to this one conversation, which tells you the import of it to him. And when this is the man who said that if everything was said about Jesus was written down, all the world couldn't contain the books, for him to devote as much attention as he does to this section surely should, uh, should garner our own attention as well. Well, I am uh, grateful to the Lord for so many things, but I think this passage has made me grateful to the Lord, maybe above everything, for his care for us. How he was very aware and very cognizant of what it would be like to live life with him, without him. To live life by faith in an invisible Savior. To live life in a way that the world would ridicule us for looking foolish for the moral stands we make and for the the songs we sing about a Savior we can't see. Jesus knew that, and he knew that would first and foremost show up in the lives of his disciples. So he he pulls them together on this last night with a last supper and a last instruction and a final prayer to get them ready, to equip them, to instruct them. One of the evidences that the image of God is stamped on the souls of men is that we all have a an unquenchable and uncanny desire to attribute responsibility for wrongdoing, right? Something happens that's wrong, we want to know who did it and how they're going to pay for it. Whether it's wanting to know who left the refrigerator door open, which happened, may or may not have happened in my house in the last week, and instead of wondering if the milk was okay, I just want to know who did it. There was this insane sense that someone needs to pay for that. You ever hear, uh, as an adult, you ever hear your father, you're, you left the, in the middle of the, the summer, you, you left the door open, are you trying to air condition the whole neighborhood? I remember my dad saying that and thinking, of course not, dad, and then I find myself saying that. We want to know who's responsible. Also, it was reflected in bigger deals. There is still an over-century-old investigation in the into the identity of Jack the Ripper in England. Why? Because it's just unsatisfying to not know who did this, who's responsible for those murders. Well, that's especially the case and has been the case for ascribing blame for who is responsible for the murder and execution of Jesus Christ. How would you answer that question? Who is responsible for killing Jesus? Now, be careful before you answer, because the Scripture actually provides several answers. The classic answer, of course, that, um, that really caused a lot of consternation, especially through the Reformation, is that the Jews were responsible for killing Jesus, or at least their leaders. Luke 24.20 explicitly says that the chief priests and rulers delivered Jesus to the sentence of death. They do bear responsibility for that. Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24 tell us that the Jews in general, not just their leaders, that the Jews were responsible at that time for nailing him to a cross, and that at the hands of godless men, now the Romans are responsible. So you have the chief priests and the scribes and the elders responsible. You have the Jews in general responsible, and you also have the Romans, the godless men who are responsible. However, that same passage in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, says that the crucifixion happened according to the predetermined plan of God. Add to that Isaiah 53, which says that it was the Father who crushed his Son, and it pleased him to do so. And you have God himself responsible for the death of his only begotten Son for the sins of those who would believe. That's a truth we should always be forever grateful for. There's another answer, though. 
And it's partially true. And that is that you and I are responsible for the death of Christ. And that is true. Our sins, our sins are the sins that he paid for and atoned for hanging on the cross. So you have all these people who are biblically and rightfully responsible for the death of Jesus. The Jews, the leaders of the Jews, the Romans, the conspirators, God himself, and our own sin. Which is the right answer? And the answer is letter E or F, all of the above. But you can add to that list two more people. And we find these two people in the passage before us. And this is... Let me just tell you, when I began studying this this week, it was... It caused a great degree of angst and anxiety even even to simply read this passage. This is horrific and awful because the responsibility of Jesus' death, in addition to those other biblical answers, all of which are true, now we find that Satan himself was involved and, as Jesus calls it, one, one of his very own one of his friends, one of his disciples. Namely, we find Satan and Judas and their responsibility in the death of Christ. Now, how does this all work together? Well, the death of Christ was first and foremost the centerpiece of God's plan. He was responsible. He was foreordainingly responsible. The lamb was slain when? Before the foundation of the world. The death of Jesus, his son, was not an accident. This was planned, foreordained, predicted. But within that plan, there, there was plenty of human and satanic responsibility that, was, that worked somehow in tandem with God's preordained plan. Now, if you want to ask me, how does the responsibility of man and the foreordination and predetermined plan of God work together? If, you, if, you, if I could answer that, I would write a book and make a lot of money. Sometimes you just have to come up to these... these um, theological challenges, and as we'll see in just a minute, and you just look at it, God's responsibility and human responsibility, God's sovereignty and human culpability, and you just have to scratch your head, and instead of figuring it out, you just need to worship. Each of these parties is worth a a study. We could study God's foreordination of Christ's death. We could look at the devil and his plan uh, to try to understand, um, uh, to try to undermine rather the death of Christ from the very beginning. We could look at the Jews and the leaders. But this passage isolates Judas and Satan. Eleven times when Judas is mentioned, eleven times in the gospel, the writers just simply include this footnote Judas, the one who betrayed the Lord. He's known as the betrayer. That word betray means to turn over, to, to give over, to rat out. And in the verses before us, we're going to witness that betrayal itself in John chapter 13, verses 18 and following. As we do so, we're going to observe three dramatic scenes in the most treacherous betrayal. If you want to follow along with an outline, we'll look at three dramatic scenes in the most treacherous betrayal. The first scene is in verses 18 to 21, the betrayal predicted. The betrayal predicted. In verse 18, Jesus says, I do not speak of all of you. Stop right there. What is he talking about? Well, you have to go back into verse 17 to to see what he's discussing. He said, we looked at this last week, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. If you know what Jesus calls calls us to be and to do as a disciple, you're blessed, you're happy, you're fulfilled, you're satisfied if you do them. There's an obedience that must attend affection. There's an obedience that must attend confession. To say that we belong to the Lord must, must, must be followed by obedience He says in reference to that, I don't speak of all of you. That should have instantly got the attention of the disciples sitting in that, remember, U-shaped table, probably a foot off the ground. They were reclining on pillows. That's why they wanted their feet washed, and the Lord has just washed their feet because their feet would have been bumping into each other, getting each other dirty, in each other's face, making it unsanitary. The Lord washes their feet. 
as they lay there. Then he starts speaking and he says, you're blessed if you follow and do what I tell you. But I'm not speaking about all of you. And you can see the air kind of begin leaving the room. Let me tell you, over the next few verses, it's going to get more and more tense in that upper room. Judas didn't qualify as one who obeyed and one who was blessed. So Jesus informs the disciples that not all of them are clean. Remember verse 10 we looked at last week, not all of you are clean. Not all of you are clean, not all of you are blessed, not all of you are obedient. And now they start thinking, who is he talking about? Now we're back to Jesus knowing the ones he had chosen. Look for a minute over at chapter 15, verse 16. This is a theme we're going to see over and over in this discourse. In chapter 15, he says it again. This is after Judas has left. In chapter 15, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you would go and bear fruit. There it is again. Obedience, fruit follows confession. Look at verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I did what? I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. Jesus' constant theme is, I chose you. This is both in the sense of the disciples as they're the first followers of Christ, but also in the sense of the elective, salvific purposes of God. He chooses. Now, the issue of the Lord's choosing has been difficult for Anyone and everyone who studied the Bible, as I said a minute ago, it solicits this brain-melting warp when you come up against it. I mean, I know that what we're saying, you know, I have decided to follow Jesus, and we did decide, didn't we? Yet God says, I chose you before you chose me. So how, do, how does that actually work out? If you want a big word for that, the theologians call this the argument about the ordo salutis of the divine decrees. All that means is, do you believe and then God saves you, or does God save you, and then you believe? Or does that just kind of all happen pretty quick in the purposes of God? How do we understand this? Now, I think this is an appropriate place in Jesus choosing, saying, I know the ones I have chosen for us to take a quick detour and to understand the both sides, the human responsibility, the choosing of God. I want to give you some relief, if I can, of seeing how the scriptures wrestle with this balance and this tension. I mean, haven't you wrestled with that in your own heart? If God chooses, where does my belief come in? And if I believe and I have faith, where does God election, God's election come in? How do those come into symbiotic relationship? Turn back to John chapter 6. And I want to show you the wonderful back and forthness of this in the mind of God, in the pen of the Holy Spirit, through John's recording of a conversation that Jesus has. And I'm just going to highlight some of this as Jesus is preaching um, this is after he gets to the shore, after he walks on the water. A crowd gathers, and um, he says a few things. I just want to kind of uh, collate with you. Look at verse 29. Um, well, verse 28. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now stop right there. Now wrap your minds around that. The work of God is that you believe. So why do we believe? Because God does work in us. So it looks like God is the one. At first glance, he's the, the puppeteer in the putting his hand in the mind of our faith. But that's not where it goes on. Look on down to verse 35. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. You can come to Jesus. You can believe in Jesus. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So the one who comes is only the one God has chosen. The one who God has chosen is the one who believes. The one who believes is the one who exercises his faith to believe. Are you getting confused? It gets worse. Verse 37, I will not cast out. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing. God the Father has given believers to the Son as a gift. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. 
Notice Jesus doesn't say, everyone who recognizes their elect, everyone who knows the secret handshake of those who've been chosen. What is the call? Believe. Behold Jesus and believe. Don't see if you're elect. That's not the criterion. He only talks to the the New Testament writers, only talk about choosing and electing to those who've already been chosen. It's not a part of the evangelistic uh, presentation of the gospel. I mean, if your evangelism starts out with, I don't know if you're elect, but let's see. That's not your best first play. It goes on, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Wait a minute. Back and forth. You have to believe. No one will come unless the Father draws him. If the Father draws him, then you will believe. So which is it? Well, let's keep going. Verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life, not he who is elect. He who has been chosen, you have to believe. That's the point. And I love this. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If the elect eat of this bread. Is that what it says? No. If, what's the word? Anyone, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The call is to everyone to believe. Verse 63, it's the Spirit who gives life. There's God's work again. Verse 64, some of you, uh, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. This is interesting because it's in the context of Judas, as this chapter will climax in chapter 6, the context of Judas that Jesus wrestles with a theological conundrum of human responsibility and divine election. Verse 65, he was saying, for this reason I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. You say, wow, this this idea of dealing with election and free will, responsibility, you choose your term, this is, much, this, is a, this is a recent discussion. We've, we, we've, we've had uh, 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 an awareness of what's going on in this human responsibility and divine election uh, tension, and people have figured this out in the last few decades, and that's a new realization. No, no, no. Because of Jesus talking about divine election, divine choosing, divine sovereignty, and human responsibility, some of those people were so frustrated. Look at verse 66. As a result of this, what's this? Go back into verses 63 to 65. It's the discussion of God's sovereignty. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Being frustrated over trying to figure this out is not new. People heard Jesus talking about this and said, I don't understand that. Forget about it. This whole discussion climaxes very interestingly in chapter 6, verse 70. Did I myself not choose you, the 12? And yet, one of you is a devil. Now, he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the 12. He was going to betray him. Let's put all that together as close as we can. Let me make it as clear as we can. No one will ever believe unless the Lord causes them to believe. But the call is to believe and not to, to see if you have some mysterious umbilical cord to heaven to see if God's caused you to believe. It's just simply to believe. If you go back in the very first uh, chapter in John chapter 1, verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Our evangelistic call, evangelistic call is to ask people to consider the facts, consider the person of Christ, and to believe, knowing that only the ones that God has called will believe. Now, if you come up to that, this is the best way I can kind of describe it. That's like coming up to a massive wall. And you just look at this wall and you say, it's too high to get over. There's no handholds. I can't get over it. It's, it extends way into the earth. It's too low to get under it. I, I, I can't, can't get over it. And you look to the right and it extends out into infinity in the east and to the west 
out to the left. You can't get over it. You can't get under it. And you can't get around it. And you can bang your head against that all day, and you will have nothing but headache. But sometimes when we have to see God's truth presented in ways we don't understand, the best thing to do, instead of doubting God, doubting his word, casting stones at contradictions that we've fabricated in our own mind, is to back up and say, this is going to cause me to worship and to adore and to admit his ways are mine. His mind, way bigger than mine. So here's the question. Do you believe that God is absolutely 100% sovereign in choosing whom is saved and that no one can come unless the Father draws him? And the answer should be yes. And do you believe that he calls anyone and everyone to believe the gospel, repent, and be saved? And the answer is yes. And when someone says, that's impossible, you can't put those together, your answer is you're right but God can. Jesus actually chose Judas to be one of the 12, knowing when he said, Judas, be one of my, my, my 12, he knew Judas would betray him. You say, was he chosen in salvation? No, because when he went out and hanged himself, Jesus called him the son of perdition, the son of damnation, the son of hell. We'll learn some lessons from Judas in a few minutes. He chose him with the full knowledge he would betray him. No accident, no unfortunate coincidence. And now we find out that, out that not only did Jesus, Jesus know about the betrayal and the betrayer, but that his treachery was actually predicted in the Bible, Psalm 41.9. It quotes Psalm 41.9 here in uh, John 13. And uh, it, it's... It's very clear that this wasn't an accident. The Lord saw it. He predicted it. I speak uh, not of all of you, the ones I've chosen, but it's that the Scripture may be fulfilled that he who eats the bread has lifted up his heel against me. Verse 19 says, from now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Jesus knew that his men would be angry, upset, discouraged, that their faith would be challenged by watching his arrest, his suffering, his beating, his death. And they would all look back and say, Judas did this. He was one of our own. And Jesus wants them to know, I know. And how about this? When they recollected this in their mind, they could have looked back. Do you think Jesus could have prevented this? In a few hours, he's going to say, I am, and the whole Roman cohort's going to fall down like dead men. He's going to heal Malthus's ear. He had at his disposal thousands upon thousands of angels waiting with their toes curled over the portals of heaven, their arms ready, their hands on their sword, ready to come and rescue Jesus. And he didn't access that. Jesus says this. It tells us, verse 19, I'm telling you this, guys, listen, someone's going to betray me. I'm telling you this so that when it occurs, you may believe. Your text may say that I am he. This gives you chills. It doesn't say I am he. It just says that you may believe I am. You may believe I am God. Why would they believe this? Why would Jesus' credibility depend on this? He's in control. He didn't stop it. He knew full well what Judas was doing, and it was for a greater purpose for their salvation than they had any understanding at that last supper. The credibility of our Lord is at stake here. No surprises. This is a part of God's purpose. The last phrase says that his foreknowledge possessed this understanding of his death so that they would believe that Jesus is God. You may believe that I am and remember back earlier in his ministry, they, they threatened to stone him because he said, I am, meaning I'm God. He says, I'm doing this. I'm going to predict Judas with great degree of, of specificity so that when he turns me in and you see all this happening, you're going to say, he is. Another affirmation, he is God. 
Look over chapter 18 for a second. Just a few chapters over. Verses four to six, I love it again. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, just stop and worship with that thought. Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, here comes the Judas with the men with the torches into the garden of Gethsemane to to arrest him. (laughs) You and I, if we had known our life for the stake, stake would have got up and ran. Jesus gets up and walks toward them. Whom do you seek, he says. They answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. He said to them, I am. I am. What was the power of that? I am God. I am that I am, quoting Exodus chapter 3, where where God reveals his name. What was the effect of that? Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. And when he said to them, I am... They drew back and fell to the ground. This is an unarmed man who just said, I am, and they fell to the ground. Was that because those Romans understood the great power of Exodus chapter 3 and 4? No. They witnessed the the shock like an earthquake, the, the reverberation of Jesus' identity as God, and that deity just threw him to the ground. Very clear here that says... Judas was there with him. I think Judas hit the deck for his own life as well. Verse 20. Truly, truly, verily, verily, honestly, honestly, truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. He who receives me, who has uh, sent him, receives him, rather, God the Father, who sent me. That's, that means just when the betrayal plays out, the disciples must remain aware of the dignity of their calling. It's going to get rough, guys, but you're representing me, and this is one of the foreshadowing of what happens to me is probably going to happen to you. John will be the only one who would die on Patmos not having a martyr's death. Verse 21, when Jesus had said this, he... When this just, I don't even know if I can read it. When Jesus said this, said what? One of you is going to betray me. He became troubled in spirit and testified. Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you, one of you, will turn me in, deliver me, betray me. Now the clarity of the betrayal is blatantly predicted. Two things stand out in this verse. First, the Lord had become troubled in spirit. Why was he troubled in spirit? Well, it wasn't so much because he knew about the betrayal. It wasn't so much that he knew about the suffering or the cross or the beatings as much as it was by what he was saying. The text tells us Jesus had said this. Literally, when Jesus was saying this, it's a present tense, He began trouble, saying what? One of you. In his humanity, to even say to those 12 men, one of you, one of our own is going to be the betrayer, that in his humanity brought him grief and troubled him in spirit. Again, his care for the disciples in this moment is astonishing. No sense of regard for his own safety. No sense of regard for his impending suffering. He was troubled because he knew he knew they would be troubled. He knew they would deeply be troubled. Now, the specificity of Jesus' knowledge of his betrayal and death is, is overwhelming. We've seen this. It's astonishing. And uh, you, can, you can take a ride with me through Mark if you want to. Otherwise, you can just listen. But in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, it, 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 and remember, this is all going to come to make sense to them in the coming days. In John chapter 8, verse 31, he says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He had already told them this. Chapter 9, verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them the Son of Man is, is to be delivered, betrayed, literally, same word, to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. 
And when he's been killed, he will rise three days later. And then we keep referencing John chapter 10, and we're going to do it again. This is repetitive. I admit it. I can't get over it, so let's just deal with it together. John chapter 10, verse 32 They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking on ahead of them. I still can't get over that. Jesus walking ahead of them knowing he's going to die. No sense of fear, no sense of regret or second guessing. They were amazed. Why? Because he was going to Jerusalem where everyone wanted to kill him. And those who followed were fearful. Why? Maybe if they kill him, we're next. And again, he took the 12 aside and began to teach them began to tell them what was going to happen. Guys, listen. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. This is from Jericho, 13 miles, almost straight up to to Jerusalem. We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered, betrayed to the chief priests, the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. How clear is this? They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Would that not solicit a couple of questions? It did in James and John. This is remarkable because John is recording this about himself. Guys, I'm going to die. They're going to beat me. They're going to mock me. They're going to kill me. They're going to spit on me. It's going to be awful. James and John, two of the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want to know, we want you to to do whatever we ask of you. He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? In other words, um, did you not hear what I just said? They said to him, Grant that we may sit on your right and the other on your left in your glory. I mean, imagine this, guys. This is the last day of of our sweet fellowship. There's going to be a palm greeting, and then it's going to get worse, and they're going to kill me and die. Okay, great. Uh, but where, where do I get to sit when you're in your kingdom? Can you say, ouch? Really? I mean, the pain of the Lord when he heard this. But Jesus said, you don't even know what you're asking. You're not able to drink the cup which I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism which, baptism which I am baptized. They said to him, yes, we are. We're able. Jesus said, tell you what, guys, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized. You want to be martyrs? Guess what? It's coming. But guys, listen, to sit on my right or left, that's not mine even to give. It's for those for whom it's been prepared. Hearing this, they began to feel indignant with James and John because they were afraid they would get to sit in a better place than they did. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great men exercise authority over them. In other words, you're trying to get, be just like the Gentiles in your leadership. But it's not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great shall be your servant. Wishes to become first among you shall be slave of all. For see, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. This was no surprise This is the motivation for Jesus being so forthright about the betrayal and the betrayer. Guys, know it's coming. Know that I know it's coming. Know later that I knew it was coming. Be comforted. This isn't an accident. So the first scene is that Jesus predicted it. Betrayal predicted. Secondly, the betrayer is now identified. The betrayer is identified. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which one he was speaking. He says, one of you will betray me. And you can look around, they're going, first of all, I think they were saying, well, is it you? Is it you? Is it you? But that turned quickly into, to me? Am I going to do this? I mean, picture that scene for a moment. They were confused, then indignant, then concerned it might be themselves. Oddly enough, Matthew tells us, that during this conversation, Judas talks. Judas speaks up and says, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, You've said it yourself. Judas' smokestream continues. And he still says, For a show to cover up his steps, It's not me, is it, Lord? 
There was Jesus, verse 23, reclining. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. There is so much debate about who this is. The best understanding without going through all the, the passages is this John, the apostle John. He's laying there close. He's close to Jesus, literally leaning on his chest. So, and this gets really interesting. So Simon Peter gestured to him. Listen, there's lots of gesturing, body language, whispering, pointing, kind of eyebrowing things that are happening right here. This is a very kind of subterranean communication scheme going on here. Simon Peter gestured to him. Hey, John. And he said to him, tell us. Who is it of whom he is speaking? In other words, you're close. Tell Jesus not to just say one of you. Find out who it is. And he, leaning thus back thus on Jesus' bosom, did say to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, and I think this is obvious. He answered it quietly to him whispering almost to John. And we know this because the rest of the disciples don't get it. This is limited information. Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas. John humanizes him here, the son of Simon Iscariot. Peter asked John, find out who it is. John asked him, Jesus, who is it? And Jesus, in a low voice, must have said, I'm going to get some bread. I'm going to dip it in the bitter herbs and in the paste of dates and honey and raisin that had been mashed up to make the bitter herbs palatable to observe the Passover feast. How do we know that this is quiet? Because there's no discussion about this. I mean, if he had said to everybody, I get, I'm going to dip it, I'm going to give it juice, this is the one. Don't you think there would have little bit of, been a little bit of commotion? Judas, you're not going to do this. Judas, you're not leaving. This was all very covert. So he dips. He dips it in the, in the paste. This would have been like flat bread, unleavened. It wouldn't, wouldn't rise. That was the whole purpose. It would have been bread that was flat, Almost like, a, almost like a chip dipped in the sauce. Jesus serves Judas. At that point, John must have pointed at Judas to Peter. The betrayer has now been identified, which leads to our third scene The betraying now begins. The betraying begins. Verse 27. After the morsel, after dipping and handing it, Satan then entered into him. The devil had put evil suggestion, an evil suggestion in the mind of Judas, and Judas took it. Who's responsible here, the devil or Judas? The answer, letter C, both of the above. He suggested it in the heart of Judas. Satan did, and Judas was happy to carry it out. Now you have a man totally obsessed with and possessed by the will of the devil. This does raise an interesting question, by the way. How did John know that Satan entered into Judas at this point? I mean, was there this kind of evil green gas substance that came into the room and went into into Judas. How did he know this? Well, there's some options. Either Jesus informed him of this uh, between the resurrection and the ascension. We know Jesus reviewed and retaught and summarized a lot of things during that time. When he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane, all that happened in the you know, the asking the Lord three times and three no answers, all of that data, how did the, the, the disciples even know that? Well, between the resurrection and the ascension, Jesus himself must have said, this is what happened. I think Jesus informed them of a lot of things they didn't understand. 
So he could have told them that. Or John may have done this with a theological calculation, knowing exactly what Satan was after, what he did. And by the power of the Holy Spirit and his inspiration, God gave him this knowledge. Whatever, it's clear that John heard what Jesus said and later put the pieces of the puzzle together that this was a satanic attack held by a responsible man named Judas. Remember, Satan is partially responsible for the death of Christ too. But why would the devil want to kill Christ if that death would accomplish salvation? You ever thought about that? We addressed this a couple of weeks ago. Why would the devil want Christ to die if Christ's death is what paid for sin? Well, there's a really simple answer to that because the death of Christ, now listen carefully, the death of Christ would not by itself accomplish salvation. It was incomplete without the resurrection. Satan counted on killing Christ. He didn't count on Christ rising from the dead. Paul told the Corinthians that without the resurrection, their faith was useless. You just have a dying man who is a nice guy. The resurrection substantiated everything, Paul says. Satan hadn't counted on the resurrection. Remember Hebrews chapter 2. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless... Who is this? Him who had the power of death, that is the devil. The devil's most powerful nuclear arsenal was death. Hmm. Acts 2.24, but God raised Jesus up again, putting an end to the agony of death. Satan's power was defeated by the resurrection. Back to the Last Supper. That last phrase, and then Jesus has a word with Judas. Peter and John have been tipped off. It's the one who I give the morsel to. He takes the morsel, he takes the bread, the flatbread, dips it in the sauce, hands it to Judas, and has a quick word for Judas. New American Standard says, what you do, do quickly. Let me tell you what the Greek probably screams and yells. Literally, it's what you're doing Do it faster. Get to it quickly. Hurry up. Get to it, Judas. Now, no one, verse 28, of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he said this to him. They heard him say, Judas, go do what you're doing quickly. Now, listen to the the benevolent motive disciples. What are they thinking? Well, for some of them were supposing, because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, but buy things we have need for the feast, or else that he should go give something to the poor. He was just off doing business. Why? Because Judas was the treasurer of the disciples. We've already noted this. He must have been important. He must have been respected. He was given the, the access to the money, the treasury to the disciples, and he was the, the purchaser, the buyer. He was the CFO of the disciples. And remember, the week before, when Jesus comes to, to, on his way to Jerusalem, he comes to Bethany, and a mile and a half over the Mount of Olives away, he comes to Bethany and stops to see Lazarus and to see Mary and Martha. And we've looked at this before, but I just want to look at it again in this context. Back one chapter in chapter 12. Jesus, verse 1, Therefore, six days before the Passover came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. I just, every time I read that, I think, I want an interview with Lazarus. Can you imagine the eyewitness news knocking his door? Lazarus, we'd like to talk to you. Was there a bright light? What was it like? So they made him supper. Martha was there serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of costly Perfume, pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of this perfume. Very expensive. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Verse 6. Here's the insight. 
Now, Judas said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief, and he had the money box, and he used to pilfer what was put into it. That was looking back. At the time, all they knew was he was the CFO and the purchaser. Judas left. What you do, do quickly. And they thought, maybe he's going to get some more food for the feast. Maybe he's going to go give something to the poor. They didn't suspect that he was the betrayer. They were still saying, is this me? Lord, is it me? Would I do this? Judas was a liar, a thief, and a betrayer. But he had a helper and a friend in his treachery. Look back at verse 2 for a moment in chapter 13. The devil, having put into the heart of Judas to betray him, the devil put the temptation, he put the bait in, Judas gladly swallowed the hook and was led to his own destruction. Why did Judas do this? Why would Judas do this? It's the question of all history. Why would Judas betray Jesus? Why? Why did you do this? If we could raise him from the dead and interview him, why Why would you do this? Why did you do this, Judas? The answer, first answer is this. 30 pieces of silver. We already knew he loved money. He did it for money. He was out for himself. Second, because of selfishness. He wanted what he could get out of Jesus. He was going to be the hero of the high priests, of the chief priests, of the Sanhedrin, of the Pharisees. He was going to be their, their boy. He was going to be the guy they looked up to. He was going to be famous as the one who then turned Jesus into the establishment. But we find out here, too, he did this also because he opened himself up to satanic influence. Verse 30, very simple. So, after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately. He hurried. He got up quickly, grabbed his things, and left. And then John adds this simple little footnote at the end of this passage. And it was night. The betraying begins. Judas goes out to meet with the chief priests to tell them that Jesus would soon be headed to the Garden of Gethsemane somehow because of habit and because of a discussion with the disciples. Judas had a clue that they were leaving the upper room and going to go down to Gethsemane. And Judas goes to tell the Romans, I know where he's going to be. Verse 30 shows the level of the Lord's love to Judas pretending to be his friend. Judas pretending to be Jesus' friend. He serves him. Let me get that for you, Judas. Here, here's something to eat. And it was night. The sad case of Judas ought to be at full volume in our thinking. First, we should be assured that against the Lord's sovereignty, even the worst satanic and human betrayal could never, ever conquer. Jesus knew what was going on. He could have ran. He could have gotten away from there. He didn't. It's a part of God's predetermined plan with satanic and human responsibility. But even more so, can I just be as clear as I think this passage wants us to be? Judas is a lasting example for those who've been around the things of God, those who've been around gospel truth, those who have pretended to have a sincere and authentic belief in Jesus, but in the end have turned out to have hearts that only wanted to be around the church for what they could get out of it, only wanted to be around the Lord for what they could benefit from, only wanted to be a part of Christianity because of the fame or fortune it might afford them. Judas teaches us that it's possible to be in close proximity to the Lord, in close proximity to true believers, and remain unrepentant and unsaved. And a very 
convincing hypocrite. What's astonishing to me is when Jesus says, one of you, there was no obvious, well, it's Judas. Obviously, it's Judas. They didn't even suspect it when the Lord isolated and identified him and he leaves. They didn't know it. Which tells us, if Judas could fool the disciples, it's very, very, very likely, as Jesus promised, that there's tares among the wheat, even in the church. This gives us pause and causes us to say, am I... Am I really saved? Do I really know the Lord? Is is my faith authentic? Is it real? Or am I playing a game? Am I a hypocrite? Matthew 7, many, underline that word, many will say to me on that day, Lord, didn't we? Lord, didn't we? Lord, didn't we in your name? And he'll say what? Depart from me. I never knew you. We don't do this enough. This is the passage from which we should evangelize people sitting in the church. Let me just beg you to examine your life. Are you, is it sincere? Is it real? Do you believe the facts of Jesus' perfect life, his death for the sins of um, sinners like you, his resurrection to prove it, his perfection, his beauty, his teaching, his offer of the gospel? Do you believe that, but have you responded to that? and bowing the knee to him as Lord. In the book of Acts, Jesus is called Lord 92 times. He's called Savior twice. He's coming to him as your master. I want to beg you, please examine your heart. Make sure that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. If you have questions about that, in a few minutes, some of our elders will be down front. We'd love to talk to you about that and pray with you, counsel you, anything we can do to serve you. Don't leave with doubts, please. Lunch can wait. Don't make eternity wait. Let's stand together, and as we do, I'm going to ask Bob to come and dismiss us. Again, if you have questions or concerns, ways that we can serve you or pray for you, you can find your way up at the front, and some of our elders will be glad to serve you in that way. Bob. Well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for today. Pray that we would leave from here. Help us not to be hypocrites. Help us to proclaim a person, our Lord, our resurrected Lord, Jesus. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. You're dismissed.